Welcome back to Investing Experts Podcast. I'm Daniel Snyder. In this episode, Austin Hankwitz from Cashflow Freaks comes back to the pod because we have industry royalty joining us today. The one and only Katie Stockton from Fairlead Strategies. Last year, Katie told us she wasn't expecting the markets to bottom until the first half of this year. So you know we'd follow up on that call. Not only that, but we dive into the TAC ETF, ticker symbol T-A-C-K, and how they operate that fund so you can better understand if it might be the perfect fit for your portfolio. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. At times, myself or the guest, my own positions in the securities mentioned, but this is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. And if you enjoy this episode, please do us a favor and leave a rating and review on your favorite podcasting app. I just want to give a big shout out to AGKDS, who wrote the most recent review. And congratulations, everyone. We have broken into the top 200 of podcast apps for investing, and I just think that's awesome. Now let's get into the interview. How about the markets lately? I mean, we are in a complete battleground right now. We saw Microsoft earnings this week. We're seeing the claw back from that. What's your initial take? It is certainly a dynamic market. And what's up, everyone? Happy to be back for a little episode for all those people that are listening and remember the OG days of uh, me co-hosting. Don't forget to leave a review with the 100 emoji so I know you're listening. Um, but man, it's been wild, right? I think it all started right with, uh, you know, we, we saw a little bit with Netflix. We're going to see a little bit now with uh, Tesla around the corner, right? It's just been so weird to kind of observe like all of these underlying economic indicators that are pointing red, 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 and then seeing the stock market say, no, nah, we don't care. We're just going to keep going up all as well. It's all good. And, you know, today here, uh, when we're recording this late January, the, the market is red because of Microsoft earnings. But it, I don't know, it's going to be really interesting to see sort of, and then also really excited for Katie to be here so she can give us some of her technical analysis guidance, at, you know, if we're uh, overbought, oversold, things of that nature, right? So it's just going to be weird. And uh, I'm really interested to see what the next, call it maybe two to four weeks uh, are going to show in the market. So Katie, how's it going? Welcome. Yeah, thanks, Austin. Good to see you guys. It, it is definitely going to be interesting. And I think the next two to three weeks will be very telling as well in terms of the posture of the market. Yeah, definitely will. Katie, why don't we just take a pause real quick and make sure for those who don't know who you are, which I don't know why they wouldn't know who you are, but for those who don't know who you are, do you have like a one, two minute background that you can just share real briefly about maybe how you got into the investing world and fairly strategies? Yeah, for sure. So again, Katie Stockton, I am a CMT, Chartered Market Technician, which means that my focus is technical analysis or watching price trends, really looking at securities from a supply and demand perspective, as opposed to looking at, say, companies, right, and trying to understand the company's fundamentals. We're watching these price charts and trying to understand market dynamics through behavioral finance and how it's manifesting itself in those supply-demand relationships. So I, I got into this in the late 90s. I studied technical analysis in college. Uh, so I was really in it from the early stages of my career. Fairly strategies is uh, sort of the culmination of a long career doing technical research, mostly on Wall Street, producing it for hedge funds and mutual funds and, and what have you. And we are an independent research provider and also a, an ETF portfolio manager. Which we definitely want to get into the TAC ETF and everything going on there. But I'm, I got to ask you from the, the, the top of the show is, you know, we think about the long-term investors, we always hear that story, but do you find that a lot of your clients are long-term investors? You mentioned hedge funds, right? I imagine they're looking at valuations plus technicals. 
So are you just a piece of the equation or do you find that your clients are like, oh no, tentacles are the way to go? And we definitely have that faction of folks that are investing solely off of charts, but I have to say we are believers in using it more holistically as a piece of the puzzle. I think that it is the best complementary discipline when you're looking also at fundamentals and also at macro research. Uh, taken together, that's where you can have the most powerful calls, I think. Um, you know, you want to have not just a sense of where things are going from a momentum perspective or whether they're stretched one way or the other from an overbought oversold perspective. You want to understand why these things are happening. The charts are going to give you that answer. So I think to be a responsible long-term investor, you need to have a basis in fundamentals. Um, we, of course, are not the experts on that front. Uh, we leave it to folks like Austin. Um, but we spend a lot of time trying to help those investors and even folks that are using technicals a bit more opportunistically uh, manage risk and find opportunities. Now, Austin and I are huge fans of your work. We got to put that out in the air. Thank and this you. is why it's like, this is such a great episode to have you on. But the last time we spoke to you, you were telling us, this was last year, right? 2022, you were telling us that you weren't expecting the market to bottom until the first half of this year. Do you still feel that way? Or what's going on here with this recent rally? I do. And I, I think people are getting a bit tired of my bearishness these days. But I have to say, you know, we, we did call for a counter trend rally off of the October low. Um, and then we switched back to a bearish bias in early December when we saw that relief rally sort of peter off a little bit. It's been a bit stronger um, in January than we expected. And yet it doesn't give us much peace of mind that we're out of the woods yet. We do think that there is another downdraft in store for the equity market. And we say that based on essentially, I'd say first and foremost, the lack of improvement that's meaningful in our long-term trend following gauges. So we have indicators that we source for to understand momentum and those overbought oversold indications, also relative strength. And the collection of those indicators really haven't signaled a, a low yet or not, or a low, yes, but not the final low of the bear market cycle. And we don't have a lot of examples of bear market cycles to source back to, but the ones that we do have, we still feel like we're fairly well aligned and on track for the same type of price action where they culminate not in a V bottom, but rather in more of a bottoming process where you stick that initial low and then you see a series of retests, more neutral overall in the price action, but somewhat harrowing at times, right? So we think that first uh, sort of final low really does have the potential of unfolding in the first half, maybe even soon. Um, and that would then get us into the place where we can say, okay, let's look at the other side of this and, and start to find opportunities that are at valuations that are attractive. Um, they may not work right away, uh, but we can use those indicators to source for long-term buy signals to get to the place where we can build up that full exposure when it's timely. Now, here's a question that I have for you, Katie, is if we rewind now back to the COVID bubble of Kathy Wood, right? We had ARKK that was hot, it was like a volcano erupting. I mean, this, this ETF was going vertical, the companies inside of it were going crazy, but then we saw that sort of have a cap in that February of 2021, right? And it's sort of been in a, in a downward spiral ever since. But if you kind of rewind back to the dot-com bubble, you know, you see companies like Amazon, for example, their stock bottomed 53 weeks before the NASDAQ did, right? And so I'm curious, like, from the perspective of saying, man, and I'm not 
comparing ARKK to the NASDAQ and saying that's the benchmark. But I, I do wonder if at, at all on your side of things, are you looking for stocks who, you know, have these under these fundamental underlying you know, just just strong businesses that are moving in the right direction who might be bottoming a little bit before the indices, if it's maybe not 53 weeks, but maybe a couple months. Like, have you all seen that at all? Is that something that's on your radar? Yeah, I mean, you you might think, Austin, that you've been reading our research because <laughs> uh, we have been talking about that to some degree. And we like to use Kathy Wood's product, the ARK ETF, as a, like a high growth benchmark in a way. And indeed, as you mentioned, it did start downtrending earlier in 2021. And the positive takeaway there is that because that downtrend is more mature, it, we have a more prolonged oversold reading on a long-term basis, looking at the monthly indicators. It's been oversold for a long time. And that, that's the case for many of its constituents, not including Tesla. Um, those constituents that have been oversold for a long time, many of them do appear to have a, a, their final low already in place even. The hard part is that the universe tends to also be very high beta, meaning high, highly volatile, especially in this type of environment where we have a lot of skittishness and arguably still in this bear market cycle. So to us, when we don't want to be early uh, because the retest of that initial low can be pretty harsh um, and tough to live through, and you're not doing yourselves any favors uh, by being early, but to rather wait for the long-term indicators, not just to be oversold, but to show a meaningful reaction to that oversold. And collectively, we don't quite have that meaningful reaction yet, but it would argue for the fact that perhaps, yes, those have already bottomed in some cases, maybe not in all cases, uh, but that they still hold short-term risk, especially when the mega caps and the major indices are seeing their next downdraft. So we, we think it's a bit early, but we do think they have a chance of bottoming, having bottomed already. And I don't know about the 53-week number, but, um, you know, th it'll be interesting to see certainly, you know, how that their bottoms compare with the bottoms in the major indices as sort of a case in point. Now, I love that you're talking about these indicators. And for everybody that's listening right now on the podcast, we're going to make sure we, we throw all the graphs and all the data that we're about to dive into over this episode up on the show notes so everybody can go check it out on Seeking Alpha. Before we jump, though, Daniel, I really want to mention something that, that kind of pulls back and kind of ties together what she was just talking about with like these other high risk assets that are sort of starting to see these bottoms before the, the larger indices do that. Uh, a, an ETF that I've been kind of like looking at, it's very high risk to think about is the Chinese Internet ETF of KWEB, right? Those That's a very high risk, like the, the investors who are looking for risky, risky ideas, that's one to look for. And it has, to what I've seen, begun to bottom, right? So it's thinking like, are investors now, is that appetite hungry? Are they now looking for those very risky ideas, which is sort of offering some of that support, which I'm sure we're going to get into here, Katie. Um, but it's it's beginning to kind of come to life from my perspective. So I'm, I'm excited to see what you know Katie has in store for us. But I just wanted to close the loop there before we move on. My apologies. But go ahead, Daniel. Yeah, I mean, and Daniel, I'll comment on that briefly just to say that um, indeed we've seen rotation into international markets, not even just China, that's been really outstanding. And, and it certainly fostered um, better sentiment year to date than we might have expected otherwise. But um, when you look at those trends now on a short term basis, extremely extended uh, with some signs of short term upside exhaustion. And yet, uh, we also see the long-term prospects there. We feel that the low that they've come off of is a major low, perhaps, even if it's not that for the S&P 500 index. 
but of course, when you also look at where they've come from, because of that high beta nature, the retracements can be far more dramatic. So you can expect underperformance when the global equity markets are pulling back collectively. Uh, so, so it's a little bit of a um, catch-22 where we, we want to be there, and yet I think it's probably prudent to wait if you're not already there um, to take advantage of that long-term turnaround. I do think that international has a chance to at least be an inline performer overall this year versus the U.S., um, and of course, that's not been the case for many, many years. It tends to underperform over the very long term. Long term. Yeah, we're seeing that conversation kind of go on right now as well. It's like, do you invest in U.S. capital markets or do you seek international at this time, especially with the the you know dollar index collapsing? It almost feels like. Um, but I wanted to go back to the S and P five hundred chart that you sent over here and and kind of talk about the indicators, right? If, if we're talking about long term investors. They might be wondering to themselves, maybe they're Austin's approach, you know, over on Cashflow Freaks, where he's looking at the fundamentals, he's looking at the quarterly earnings, he's diving into revenues there, he's having the conversation about here's the takeaway that really matters for this quarter. But if they're doing more of the top down approach, and they're like, what indicators might help me? How did you choose your indicators? Like, what would you recommend? How did you get to the indicators that you've chosen for your methodology? And, and is that something that you would recommend to other investors? I, I mean, for sure, we believe wholly in our methodology, but honestly, it's not even that important which indicators you use. It's more important which indicators you uh, go back to. Uh, you have to have a system, right? You don't have to have a trading system, but you have to have a systematic approach to technical analysis, I think, to really use it um, in an effective manner. So, you know, none of the indicators are perfect. We don't have a holy grail in our suite of indicators, um, but we do have a way to understand markets um, from almost just a mathematical perspective. Is this a buy signal? Is this a sell signal? How has that, um, you know, acted in the past? We have these very, you know, uh, clear historical references for the indicators that we're using. Our suite of indicators uh, just developed over time from various mentors that we had the pleasure of working with and working for. And, uh, you know, it's it just stuff that resonated with me, quite frankly. So when we would evaluate something, we all have either a left brain, I guess, or a right brain. And, um, you know, some of the indicators that we use, I just think suited me in terms of what I was doing in the market. And also the time frame that I favor, uh, everybody sort of has that, right? Um, so we, we use some very popular tools uh, that you'll read about in the textbooks. We also use a couple, probably more obscure tools, but um, some that are a little bit more difficult to get information on, but we feel like give us an edge in what we're doing. Um, but it's really just over the years collecting sort of various indicators that suited our, I guess, personality and the way we think about markets and then combining them in a way that we feel is um, not uh, overly complex, right? I think that that's the other issue. In the same way that a, a trader often feels like they had a, a bad experience because they over-traded, right? Um, that, that's something that's very common. In fact, I think it was very common, especially last year, people just kicked themselves because they traded a whole lot and with not a whole lot of uh, results from that. Um, in the same way, a technical analyst, um, you know, that we we find these indicators that we love and we want to incorporate, but then what we find ourselves doing is duplicating uh, the types of things that we're looking at. So knowing that everything's a derivation of price for the most part, um, you know, we don't want to get too many derivatives away from price. And we also don't want to duplicate um, 
you know, the things that we're trying to take away uh, from the various tools that we're using. So the idea would be to keep it simple, uh, to choose indicators that sort of reflect your trading personality, if you have one, or just the way you think about the world, um, and then to continue to go back to the same ones, um, you know, time and time again. Now, here's my question with that, Katie. I'm sure there's someone listening right now that's like, okay, I don't even know where to start. I, I think I should be using three or four indicators. I, I'm over here on trading view trying to figure it out. If you can name one indicator, if it's the RSI, the 200-day moving average, like if you can name one for someone to just like learn like the back of their hand, that's really going to help them find those companies that might be overbought, oversold, really going to help them figure this out. What would that one indicator be? Oh, gosh. I mean, the hard part is that we combine so many, right, to arrive at our our, uh, market views. Um, But I would say the MACD indicator, moving average Mm, convergence, mm -hmm. divergence, which is one of the most popular ones out there for trend following and judging market momentum. And that's probably the the go-to when people ask me that, like if I go to my deserted island, right, which which indicator am am I taking with me? Uh, But I would say that before when we're evaluating a chart before we're looking at the indicators even we're looking for important levels so we're looking for key areas of potential support which would be buying pressure and resistance which would be selling pressure so i the hard part is that it's not quite as um, objective it's really subjective and it comes i think with experience and looking at a lot of charts so the folks that are out there looking at a bunch of charts on trading view or some other platform they're already doing it, right? They're already seeing price action unfold into these various levels, whether it's you know something like a 200-day moving average or a previous peak or trough on the chart that's informing their biases. I think they're they're going to find that they're already starting to do it without even really uh, having to study it to a great degree. Uh, but I do also recommend, uh, you know, the CMT program has three levels. Uh, someone who would be really, you know, more highly interested in it is well served, I think, by going into that coursework that they use for level one CMT, because one, it puts them on on track for a designation if they so choose, but two, also is a nice curated sort of picture of technical analysis with it and eye towards risk management mostly. Got it. So MACD is what I'm hearing. Very cool. MACD. Keep it simple. Love it. All right. So now that we've given somebody an indicator, let's talk about what I think is probably the meat of this episode. And I would love to dive into your TAC ETF and specifically like how it's constructed, how you came up with it, why certain investors want to hold it in their portfolio. I mean, I know why I would want to. I know, I mean, Austin, you hold it in your portfolio, right? I mean, this is such a great ETF. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That hold on, let me get the updated number on Seeking Alpha right now. Assets under management is up to 213 million. Like, bravo. Congratulations. (laughs) That is awesome. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it. Awesome. I mean, it's just like the way you build it. Well, I'll I'll let you explain it, right? Because it's it's about how you do the sectors and how you build the buckets and everything. So could you just give us like a a general overview of how you constructed this ETF? Yeah, I mean, it is a, a byproduct of our methodology, right? So it's systematic in its approach. And I, again, that's, I think, the key to succeeding in using the chart. So what we found is that our client base, which were subscribing to our research product and our consulting services, were often trying to uh, sort of leverage sector rotation. It was a very common strategy, and honestly, for good reason, because I think sector rotation, sector relative strength, it's like the low-hanging fruit in terms of outperforming the S&P 500. We have these great 
existing exchange traded funds in the sector spider ETFs that people are trading really actively with very low expense ratios. And those um, you'll see any given year, massive dispersion in their relative performance. You know, energy outperforming massively last year is a great example up something like 50% when everything else is down. Uh, you have these major trends in relative strength terms to take advantage of. So that's our primary goal with the TAC ETF, which is called the Fairlead Tactical Sector ETF, uh, to leverage those sector trends and momentum. Now, we start with eight buckets to fill, and those are equal weighted buckets of about 12.5%. And we are sourcing the 11 major economic sectors via ETF, those sector spider ETF. And we're looking for the best of the best using our methodology with a combination of momentum indicators, overbought, oversold measures, relative strength indications, and at times employing sort of a quantitative ranking system when we have too many choices to work with, which has not been the case since inception in March. Uh, when we launched it, we did have substantial sector exposure, not full sector exposure, and it's uh, morphed into almost fully risk-off exposure. So the unique thing about the TAC ETF is that it also has uh, the ability to move into alternative asset classes when the market dictates. So when we don't have enough sectors to fill those eight buckets, we will give that bucket to different asset classes via also ETFs. So it's essentially a fund of funds. And these other ETFs represent short-term treasuries, long-term treasuries, and gold, all of which tend to outperform the equity market in downdrafts, right? So we want to avoid have carrying the risk that's inherent to the equity market in bear market cycles like we have been through. So with that, you get nice outperformance, of course. It doesn't mean it's always in the green, especially like a year like last year where we had a long-term treasury bear market as well. Uh, but that outperformance is extremely valuable because it, it allows you to start from a higher base when you rebuild and get that sector exposure to where you want it to be. So in a year like last year, we saw a lot of turnover. Uh, we would expect that to remain somewhat high. Um, the, the model that we developed had about 100% turnover on average annually, uh, but that will vary, of course, based on the environment. In a strong uptrend, we would expect to see a really a very low turnover. We'd expect to just stay with the winning sectors um, as it pertains to momentum. Uh, so the goal with the ETF and, and folks' portfolios would be to say, okay, well, uh, we don't believe personally in a uh, long-term buy and hold strategy, because if you're doing that, you're riding those downdrafts. Right, and you're setting yourself at a, a lower uh, sort of uh, starting point uh, for getting reinvested. But um, this is an ETF that you can buy and hold long term because it will do that sort of market timing for you, right? So you can manage risk while you're still uh, leveraging the long term shifts and sector trends. So it's it's really almost sounds like it's kind of perfect. Like if you're expecting this this re recent, if you want to call it a bear market rally right now that's going on in the market, which it sounds like, you know, you said earlier, you're still expecting the market to pull back again. This is kind of like that area where somebody could go and find some capital preservation in the meantime, waiting for the market to come back, create that second, third try of the base, right, of, the, of where we're trying to find a bottom and, and find the next leg higher. Kind of sounds like your ETF is made for that, but then also you're seeing a little bit of upside from the gold and the treasuries. Is that right? That's right. So the gold and the short-term treasuries have, have contributed to the upside. And 
We think this year, uh, being a potential inflection year, it'll be really interesting to see how things unfold. Uh, the ETF is long-term in focus, which we really do believe in long-term investing, right? We, we don't want to get caught up in too much noise. Arguably, in our research, we get caught up in the noise more to help people manage risk and navigate uh, sort of entries and exits and uh, with their positioning. Uh, but in terms of investing, if you can ride a trend and not over trade, I think that's really beneficial. So we're trying to take advantage of those long-term shifts of which we really could have one this year. Uh, so it's going to be uh, sort of uh, the model will be proven uh, as it has already now in a bear market cycle um, in, in that kind of shift, because the long-term shifts are so hard to capture um, for us as, as sort of human beings that we tend to uh, get really shaken by these kind of environments, especially if we were to see another downdraft that took like that volatility index up to 50 plus, which is something that we're calling for. That kind of sentiment sort of washout is going to be, um, you know, unlike what we felt so far uh, in recent history. And it's something that that uh, really shakes confidence in markets. And especially if we have a recession at hand at the same time, you can imagine that psychologically it takes people a long time to get back to where they, um, you know, should be in terms of exposure to the equity market. And it's, it's nice to have uh, that done in a way systematically uh, for you because it, it can take the emotions out of it. Now, speaking about the systems and the emotions, something I'm certainly a very emotional <laughs> trader sometimes. And Daniel, it's funny you're over here talking about as like a, you know, a way to preserve a portfolio when the ups and downs and the uncertainty is, is certainly upon us. And it's like, wow, it's like you are literally saying why I'm investing in ET in into tech, right? Why I have, like that's exactly right. Like like instead of a, a large cash position I have, I have tech instead, right? So here's something I want to talk a little bit deeper though about Katie is you talked about these specific, you know, it's a fund of funds, right? It's 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 you got ETFs inside of this ETF. And looking at your research here that, that you've shared, there's a couple sort of sectors in the stock market that you are underweight um mm -hmm. as it relates to being you know skeptical on. There's a couple that you're overweight, right? Some that you uh, perhaps could be excited about. Can you walk us through a little bit about perhaps you know the consumer discretionary uh, and kind of, kind of starting with that underweight side of um, you know of the equation? I'm curious, like walk us through sort of maybe what makes you think you would be underweight, why it's not a part of the like things of that nature, right? For the people like, well, what's the science behind it? What's the real like? How is she feeling this right, out? Right. I think that might be uh, beneficial to the audience. Um, so, so I think what you were asking is, is how sort of the relative strength trends manifest themselves um, that we're publishing in our research. They tend to actually be um, more intermediate term and focused. So we take the 11 economic sectors and we'll evaluate them not only in absolute terms, but we'll take them as a ratio versus the S&P 500. And that ratio becomes like the basis for a lot of our analysis. And that analysis is in relative terms. So we have to make sure uh, that we're not uh, confusing uh, the absolute and the relative takeaway. And that if we have an overweight recommendation in something, uh, that overweight sort of uh, rating doesn't mean that in a weak tape that it's going higher. It just means it's going less Got lower, it. you Got know, of course, than, uh, than the S&P 500 based on our relative work. So you can have a relative strength uptrend and still see something going down in absolute terms. It just depends on how bad the broader market is. 
what you tend to see um, outperform, of course, in bear market cycles are defensive sectors. So last year, we got outperformance from the likes of healthcare, uh, consumer staples, utilities, and then as an aside from energy. Um, and those trends still haven't really changed in our opinion. So we've had pullbacks in the last couple of few weeks uh, in that relative performance, but we want to stay focused longer term on those trends in relative strength terms. And it's those trends that will guide us, right, as we um, evaluate the sectors when, they're, when they actually have positive long-term momentum. Unfortunately, what happened last year, they all lost long-term momentum. So we saw even utilities, which had been pretty stalwart, right, and in, in upholding their uh, momentum and their long-term uptrend broke down. Uh, so th that was something that we just had to be respectful of. So we that's the last sector that we kicked out of the TAC ETF. And energy is still in there because energy is, is kind of the last sector standing in terms of having that long-term momentum characteristic that to us is so important. So we have to always differentiate between the relative performance and the absolute performance, but we do spend a lot of time on the intermediate term uh, takeaways of those ratios, because we think that that, um, especially on like a quarter over quarter basis over which a lot of our advisors and portfolio managers that we consult for, they're evaluated over those timeframes. They're not evaluated once a year, they're evaluated every quarter. Uh, so it's important to them to take into consideration their sector exposure over that time frame. Now, my last question here as it relates to TAC, and I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway, Katie. Do you, So for example, gold's been grinding higher, right? I know, you know, gold is, is a part of this uh, energy, right? We, we see uh, the price of oil kind of moving in the right direction over a kind of a longer time horizon. Do you at all have any sort of, I, I, I think that TAC is very rules-based. You guys have a system to it. It's very if-then statement. But is there ever a time where it's like, man, we saw this in the news and it could be something interesting or should this, you know, would this be, are we front-running the idea of, of what we think the charts are going to do? Are you doing any of that or is it really just if-then statements? Or, yeah, or Jim Simon, <laughs> you say, just trust the system. Yeah, so I, it was, is intended to be 100% systematic. So if you uh, if you read the prospectus, it, it's described as such, and yet it's still classified as an active ETF and treated as such by you know the platforms and what have you. Um, so it, it is active, it's very dynamic, uh, but it is systematic in that the models will inform the changes. Um, and then of course, you know, we as the portfolio manager will evaluate that just to make sure nothing's terribly screwy and, and out of line with what um, we're seeing in the, the charts themselves, right? Because we, like a lot of people are very skeptical and we wanna make sure that any quantitative uh, model is, is doing what it should do according to our uh, typical sort of technical methodology. So we're, we're very on top of it to make sure that the output is aligned with what we're seeing. And, uh, and yet we really believe that that's the way to do it for managing a portfolio. There's a lot more uh, to sort of portfolio construction. Um, it's not, you, you don't uh, sort of manage a whole portfolio typically using technical analysis. In this situation, you can do that because it's all sort of top down in its orientation. If you were to have an ETF that had individual stocks, you would want to also have that sort of fundamental um, component to it. Uh, but because we have the, um, those great relative strength inputs and momentum gauges, 
um, you know, for sort of a technically managed portfolio, I think this is um, the best way to go about it. I wanted to ask real quick, um, you also include in the, in the research, and we'll put this in the show notes so people can see this, the five-day relative rotation graph of the S&P 500 sector indices versus the SPX. Have you noted, I mean, so it breaks it down, leading, weakening, improving, and lagging, and it kind of shows the trend of where they were and where they're moving. Is it pretty accurate to see these sectors go from lagging to improving, or is it, do they park themselves there? Like, I, I don't think I've ever seen this before. It's a really cool data visualization tool, and I have to give some credit to Julius de Kempenar, who founded this way of, of sort of visualizing relative strength, not just for sectors, but you can kind of plug in anything you want to evaluate. And it is a proprietary model to him, uh, which normalizes everything. So that's the cool part about it. Because everything's normalized to what your chosen benchmark is, which for us is the S&P 500, you can see the rotations um, not only versus the S&P, but versus the other sectors. Um, so that chart that we publish in our weekly report is a five-day view, so it's ultra short-term. We like to source it because we want to see if there's a, a shift from risk on to risk off, perhaps, or if there's something emerging that's worth, you know, kind of sniffing around in. Um, we get some nice early indications from these relative strength reversals, and it is amazing. I tell you, the cyclicality of the markets is not just limited to sectors, but you can see it in cryptocurrency. We, we actually track that same chart for altcoins. Uh, versus Bitcoin, which is fascinating. And they all move in this um, clockwise rotation among these quadrants. I mean, there are at times, of course, imperfections and things that go, you know, way off to the corner, that type of thing. Uh, but overall, you, you can see when you animate these charts, the cyclicality that we've spent so much time trying to evaluate. And the cyclicality comes from not just economic cycles, um, because we can also see it on very short-term timeframes, uh, but really market psychology. Um, so it's how investors are behaving and the sentiment behind the market that you can evaluate by seeing these rotations. And um, it is fascinating. It has inputs that are driven by relative strength and then also momentum. So in the chart itself, for folks who are able to access it, they uh, will see that some are pointing up and to the right. So those are the sectors that are outperforming with growing momentum. But if you can kind of trust that clockwise rotation to it, you can trust also that some of those after, say, a week or two will probably fall out of favor. That's so interesting. I love that. Um, I have to ask, so from what we've been talking about overall, I'm just kind of like wrap up mode. So you're talking about your take right now is that we're still in a risk off environment, correct? That's Even right. though the market is taking cryptos back over 20,000 and seems like risk ons coming on and everything else. Got to ask you though, because people want to plan for the entire year. We have a lot of people out there managing money, following what you say. Should we expect the pullback in the first half with a massive rally in the second half? Like people, Tom Lee and out there are telling everybody to, to expect, I mean, or what's the overall 2023 view from Katie Stock? Sort of a, a playbook, right? Um, if only I had that crystal ball, right? <laughs> we're, we're generally trying not to be ultra predictive in our work, but really trying to help people stay on the right side of existing trends. We, we never will hold ourselves to a year-end target. Um, and indeed, while, while I am, you know, risk off and long-term positioning, it has, as you referenced, been a risk-on environment. We've seen a 40% rally in Bitcoin. We've seen 
40% rally in uh, NVIDIA. Um, we've seen massive rallies in China, as Austin brought up. Um, so that risk on, uh, it, unfortunately, is because of how quickly that rally unfolded for some of these areas of the market, that in a bear market cycle, the relief rallies tend to be really fast and furious. And I would argue that that's what we just had. It's sort of a fast and furious risk on move from various asset classes. I even saw the meme stock start to perk up again. Um, so that is more characteristic, unfortunately, of a bear market cycle than it is a bull market. What would be more encouraging would be more of a regular sort of, uh, you know, you get 30 bips every day, you kind of stair step higher. Something that's a little bit more orderly is actually a bit more bullish, even if it's not quite as exciting. Um, so, so we think of that as being, um, you know, somewhat fragile. It's very difficult to time from a short-term perspective. We're out there trying to do it with everyone else. Uh, if we had to to be um, sort of out there with a playbook, I would say, you know, a, a downdraft seems likely very near-term to us. Um, that could be significant. Our hope is that that's the last one. Um, we think 3,500 will be undercut by the S&P 500 uh, in the first half. And with that, we also would expect sentiment to get to a place where it would, would be more conducive to a major low. And, um, and yet, like we said, it, it doesn't um, often end in sort of a V bottom. Corrections do, but not bear market. So we would look for more of a, a neutral range uh, to unfold on the back of that major low. And that's unfortunately still a pretty difficult environment in which to trade and invest. Um, but we're going to just do our best to navigate it with everyone else. That was a great answer, right? I don't think that answer could have been any more like perfectly, <laughs> well, we don't know, but we will say this. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and I, I like, I mean, hey, my put options that have strike prices at 3,500 are also hoping we undercut that, right? So there you fingers go. crossed. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good level. That's awesome. Well, Katie, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Can't thank you enough for taking the time, sharing your research with everyone. I know everybody right now is it's the beginning of 2023. We're all trying to figure out what our playbooks are for the year. I know, like I said, Austin and I are huge fans of your work. Uh, I hope everybody can go check out the, the graphs that you shared with us that we're going to put up in the show notes as well. Um, people can find you at Fairly Strategies. They can see your TAC ETF. And, and actually, we were just talking about this. We just had Curtis Hemmerling, who put up an article about the TAC ETF, and people can go read that on Seeking Alpha as well. Austin. Katie, anything else we should point out, say, am I missing something before we wrap up today's episode? Thank you so much for the opportunity and obviously good luck with these markets. So we'll see how it goes. I love it. And thanks again for hanging out. And thanks again, Daniel, for having me. Uh, everyone listening, I am the biggest fan of Katie Stockton. She's a rock star. So if I have any weight in what you have to, what you go do, definitely go check her out. She is incredible, especially on Twitter. She's pretty active. <laughs> Austin, can I ask you real quick? Last time we spoke, you said you were starting this $2 million portfolio. Yes. Is that, is that where you hold the TAC ETF? Uh, it is not where I hold the TAC ETF. So I hold it actually in my SEP IRA, right? So it's actually my retirement account. So instead of having it all in cash, I got the TAC ETF and I'm rolling and rocking. Back to that idea of like this long-term hold that Katie was talking toward, that's where it's being held. The uh, the $2 million ETF is a little, I'm sorry, uh, portfolio rather is a little bit more risk on than, than I think the TAC ETF uh, can provide, but that's uh, that's by design. We, we like to say opportunistic. <laughs> When she switches, Absolutely. when that rotation happens, right? When she, all of her buckets start going into the next bull run. I'm just saying. I'm excited. I'm excited. You got to think <laughs> about too, it. Guys. So, 
All right, everybody, take care. Thanks for listening to this episode. Katie, thanks again one so much, so much. Really appreciate the time. And everybody, take care. We'll see you next episode. Just a reminder, everyone, if you enjoyed this episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app. And we'll see you again next week with a new episode and a new guest.